0: Welcome to South. We are we're glad that you're here this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to First Chronicles chapter 29. If you need to use the table of contents, you won't get judged here. Um 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And and we've been in uh 1st and 2nd Samuel over the past few weeks, and really um 1st and 2nd Chronicles in, in some ways tell the same story from a little bit of a different perspective. And so we're gonna wrap up the story of David and, and his life this morning, and I've chosen the ending from second Chronicles, um, it differs a little bit just in perspective, um, and what the chronicler wants to point out, I, I thought was maybe something that God wants to say to um, our body this morning. So first Chronicles chapter 29, and as I was uh, preparing the message this week, I, I had an experience yesterday that sort of reminded me of one of the key principles that we're going to see illustrated and drawn out in David 's life. We were uh, my son and I went to run a few errands. Well, I went to run a few errands and I took him with me um, yesterday and we were over at South Glen and as we pulled out of South Glen, there was a stop sign and, and my son says, dad, that's a stop sign. It says stop. And I said, you are, you're smart. And I said, what, what are those letters on the stop sign? And he says, um, C-T-O-P. And I'm like, three out of four ain't bad. You know, Um, if you're three out of four baseball, you're an all-star unbelievable. So I was like, well, no, buddy, that's an S S T O P. That spells stop. And and I said, and what do you do at a stop sign? He says, well, you stop. (laughs) Yes, you're bright. You are glad you take after your mom. You are smart. So, um, We uh, keep going out, and we hit another stop sign. He says, Dad, another stop sign. And I said, yes, it is. And we went another stop sign, and he says, Dad, another stop sign. Yes, it is. And we are driving home, and I'm just talking with him, and he says, Dad, that was another stop sign. (laughs) And I looked over to the side, and sure enough, in my rear side view mirror, I see a stop sign pass in the distance, and I look to my left, and a lady is telling me, in no uncertain terms, that she thinks I'm number one. Well, she had at least one finger up. I'm not sure what she was trying to tell me, uh, and I, I was reminded of a principle that I think all of us can agree is true. See if you can finish this for me. Hindsight is always 2020. Yeah, hindsight is always 2020. Like if I if I had to do it over again, and I hope for redemption that I would see the stop sign and stop at said stop sign. See, here's the thing, the the longer we live, the more things we can go back on in our life and say, you know what, I I think knowing what I know now, I might do that a little bit differently. Knowing what I know now, I might approach the way that I handled things differently in that situation, in that relationship, in that job. And and you see, the longer we live, the more things we have the ability to look back on and say, you know what, I'm not sure I did that quite right. (laughs) Or if I had to do it over again, I would. We're going to encounter David at the end of his life today. And at the end of his life, he's going to take a a moment and he's going to step back and he's going to point out some things for us. I'm going to sort of the clarity at the end of his life, this deathbed perspective, this hindsight 2020 vision of the things in his life that really mattered, the things in his life that That made a difference, the things in his life that he forgot for a time and and absolutely robbed him of joy, and the things in his life that I think if he had to do it over again, he would do. Isn't it amazing? Towards the end of life, the things that make life worth living sort of come to the forefront, don't they? The things that, that really make life worth living start to have an exclamation point. After them as you get closer to having fewer and fewer fewer and fewer days to live them That's david He has this unbelievable clarity about some of the things that shaped and molded his life in his successes And in his failures and if you read a few of the chapters that we skipped you'll see a lot of failure And he's going to look at today and I think he's going to say to us If I had to do it over again, here are the things that I would build my life 1 chronicles chapter 29 we're going to jump in at verse one for a little bit of context and where we'll eventually land in verses 10 through 20 here's what it says and the king david said to the whole assembly my son solomon whom god has chosen is young and inexperienced i mean so so solomon says gather around nation my son's young and a moron He's about to take the throne, and he is inexperienced, doesn't know what he's going to do, doesn't know what he's doing, and you need to pray for him. (laughs) Some of you think that every Sunday. You know, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So David is never going to win Father of the Year award. There's a lot of things that David's good at. Being a father wasn't necessarily one of them to bring everybody around and say, my son is young, and he's inexperienced, and he doesn't really know what he's doing. He says the task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord. And with all my resources, I've provided for the temple of my God. So David was told no to building the temple, but yes to providing for the temple to be built by his son, Solomon. Solomon gold for gold work gold for gold work silver for silver bronze for bronze iron for the iron and wood for the wood as well as onyx for the settings turquoise stones of various colors and all kinds of fine stone and marbles all of these in large quantities so he says i gave all of that and besides in my devotion to the temple of my god i now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my god Over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the building, for the gold work and for the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord? And so at the end of his life, David says, I am going to lavishly give to God. 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver. I read a lot of different sort of commentaries on how much people would say this is worth today. Um, somebody said, you know, one talent was worth about a year, 10 years wages for normal working class. Some people estimated that, that what David gave to the building of the temple would have been the equivalent of somewhere around $5 billion today a pretty lavish gift. You see, David didn't give out of his treasuries. David gave the whole thing. I mean, he just sort of emptied it, and he said, here, it's for the Lord's work. It's for the building of his temple, which was completely contrary to other kings in his day, who towards the end of their life would say, build something for me. I want to be remembered. I want to be appreciated. I want you to remember what I've done. And David says, no, I want you to remember what God has done. I want you to remember the way that God has worked. And I want you to have a place, not where you can appreciate me as your king, but him as the true king. Verse 6 continues. And the leaders of the families of the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge gave the king's work Uh, of the king's work, gave willingly. If you have your own Bible, circle that word willingly. They gave towards a work of the temple of God, 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 8,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. That's a lot of talents. And who had precious stones, gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gerashite. And the people, verse 9, the people, catch this, rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they'd given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David also rejoiced greatly. This word wholeheartedly here um, is, is literally um, two words put together in the Hebrew um, shalom heartedly, um, fullheartedly, peace heartedly, complete heartedly. That they engage in this endeavor of giving a lot of their possessions to the building of the temple with great joy. And there's this one word in there that just sort of catches my heart. Uh, it says, The people rejoice at the willing response of the leaders. The willing response. And I'm reminded that you and I we have we have two sort of choices as we approach God. We have two choices. We can either do things out of duty or we can do things out of response. You see, what David does not say at the end of his life is, I'm going to give all these things and I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to be generous because I should. I don't know about you, but I'm sort of, the shoulds and the oughts that Christianity oftentimes gets turned into are just sickening sometimes. Because they're they're so shallow compared to the depths that God invites us to. We should read our Bible. We should pray. We should give. We should serve. And it's this like begrudging submission to this set of ideals that we really don't believe. But what David does as he looks back on his life is he says, listen, my my generosity, my giving isn't because I should. It's because I know a God who gave way more to me over the course of my life than I could ever give back to him, even if I emptied my whole treasury for him. And here's the thing. I, I think one of the things that comes into clarity for David as he enters the last few days of his life is this is a clarity of God's goodness to you and to me moves us from obligation to joyful response. Moves us from feeling like we have to do things to, as the people give some of them probably everything that they had, to freely, wholeheartedly, joyfully. So let me ask you a question at the onset here. Would you say that that characterizes your life? Is that part of the the ethos of who you are, your your character and the core of your very being, that that what you do, quote-unquote, for God is ultimately simply a response to what God has done already for you? I think that's where David lands as he stands or maybe sits or lays on his bed knowing that his days are few. What he does is he says to God, God, it's simply a response. It's simply a response to how good you've been and how gracious you've been to me over the course of my life. And he moves into this prayer that uh, really illustrates for us uh, and shows us his heart. In doing this. And I want to draw out uh, four things this morning that I feel like if we're able to embody people who live in response to the goodness of the gospel, not, not out of the shoulds and oughts of duty, but out of response to the gospel, things that, that I think are going to epitomize not only David's, David's life, as he says, but your life and my life as well. Verse 10 says this, and David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord. God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. So so as he lies on his his deathbed, as it were, he, he remembers back to the times in his life where he reigned and the time in his life where he was powerful and he thought he had control. And I think he interjects a little correction here to some of the way that he lived. And he says, God, it was always yours. It was all about you. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. And as his body's weak and his bones are brittle, he may just have this realization that, God, you'll never feel this way. You'll never feel this. You're unreal. You're amazing. You're powerful. And I think he thinks, "And, and I'm not. And the glory and majesty and splendor for everything is in heaven is yours and on earth is yours. Yours, O oh Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things, and in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Isn't it interesting that David, in his weakness, remembers the time when he lived in strength and goes, God, it was yours. It wasn't mine. That's, that's 2020 vision. Because how easy is it for you and I in the midst of life to think we're strong and we're powerful and we've got it made and God has these ways of reminding us, no, you're not. No, you're not. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Verse 14, David says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Catch this. Everything comes from you. And we have given only what comes from your hand. Do you love this, this deathbed perspective by David? He says, listen, everything that I have, the things that are are mine in life, whether it's my job or my vehicle or my house or my wife or my bank account or whatever it is, God, it's all yours. It's all yours. I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait till my deathbed to have that kind of clarity with my stuff, with my time, with my energy. And here's the point that David makes for you and I. Is that if we're going to be people that live in response to the gospel, one of the things that has to be at the forefront of our mind is recognizing that what we own is really loan. I was uh, having coffee with Carolyn this week and just sort of talking about life and faith, and she made this comment, which is where this point comes from, that she said, you know, um, as I get older, I realize more and more that the things that I have are really on loan from God, that they're all, that they're all His, and they're all going back to Him anyway. And there's this freedom that comes when we realize what Dave, what Paul says to the Roman Church in Romans chapter eleven i 'm just going to read verse thirty six he says this for from him this is jesus he 's talking about for from him so, so they originate in him and through him so that 's the the mode of of bestowing the grace and the blessing on us so from him and through him the book of Colossians is going to say that he holds Everything together by the very word of his voice right now, from him and through him and ultimately to him, are what? All things. There's not one thing in your life that he does not own. There's not one thing in your life that did not originate from him, that did not come from him and from his gracious hand, and there's not one thing in your life that he does not hold together this very moment. All things means all things, including our lives. And as David gets closer to the end, I think he realizes that this whole life was really a gift of grace and of mercy from God. We... um when we moved to San Diego, San Diego I think I've told the story before, but when we moved to San Diego, we were upside down in our house in Aurora, and so we rented it out. Um, and our, our latest renters were, were just unreal, not in a, wow, you guys are unreal way, but in a way, where you guys are unreal. How many dogs did you have in this place? Unreal. Didn't know you were running a pound? Unreal. The smell coming from the carpets was unreal. Yeah, I mean... You walked in, and, and, and uh, I won't go into detail, but it was um, breathtaking. <laughs> Here's what I realized. Um, I, I wouldn't have treated my house like that. You know, I, I wouldn't have treated my house like that. And, and I think people, uh, w- when, we, when we don't own something, we treat it differently. And I think there's this deep-seated conviction in every human being that we really don't own this stuff, and so sometimes we treat it a little bit hastily. I wonder, if everything is on loan, and if everything is God's, how would we treat it if we asked him, the owner, the landlord of it all, God, what do you want me to do with it? God, what do you want me to do with my, my time? If it's a gift from you, God, how do you want me to spend it? If my, if my energy is a gift, if my resources are a gift, if my job's a gift, if my neighborhood's a gift, if, if all these things in my life are gifts, the question becomes God, what do you want me to do with it? How do you want me to spend it? For your glory and for my joy. You see, I think he starts to change our perspective. And that's, that's clarity that David gets close to the end where he says, I never owned any of this anyway. As it's slipping through his hands, he is painfully reminded it was never mine. It was always gift. And I can t- how would that change you and I if we got that now? If it didn't take the deathbed perspective, 2020 a hindsight vision to go, yeah. Here's the way that David continues. Verse 14, he says, but who am I and who are my people that we should, catch this, be able to give? I mean, that's a different perspective. That's a different um, idea and heart sort of motivation behind giving, that we should be able to give as generously as this. Here's the thing that I think David would speak to us in his hindsight 2020 vision. I think he would say that recipients of great grace always respond with lavish generosity. Recipients of great grace always respond with lavish generosity. It reminds me of the story when Jesus was interacting with with the Pharisees and and eating dinner with them and a woman sort of barged through the door and, and she was a woman of ill repute and she barged in and she had this little jar of perfume and she broke it and she poured it on Jesus and the Pharisees looked at her like, woman, are you crazy? Do you know who that is? And she says, yes, that's why I poured the perfume all over him. Jesus responds to the Pharisees, by saying, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. You see, those who receive great grace respond, always respond with lavish generosity. That's what Jesus points out. She knows who she is and she knows what she's done and she knows what she deserves, but she also knows what I've, in my grace, done for her. And so it changed her life. It lit her life up. And so, Pharisees, you want to look on and say that's not culturally acceptable. And Jesus says it is absolutely acceptable. When you encounter grace, it changes you. It changes you. And you give and you give without counting the cost and you give sometimes without even knowing I love the way that the commentator, William Barclay, writes it. He says this. If love is true, there must always be a certain extravagance in it. It does not nicely calculate the less or more. It's not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all it had, the gift would still be too little. There's a recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. I think you see David in in this clarity of having only a few days left to live saying, yes, that's true. And, And I want to love my God lavishly, he says, lavishly generously, not out of oughts and shoulds and duty, but out of grace and response to the goodness of how good God has already been to me. Listen to the way Paul writes it to the Corinthian church. He says this, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given. Isn't that interesting? He's like, hey, hey, God has given great grace to the Macedonian churches, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and, extreme, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Those are oxymorons, aren't they? In verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you, through your poverty, might become rich. I wonder how many of you need to hear that this morning, that God has been ridiculously, abundantly, unbelievably good to you. The way to know if you really believe it. Here's this. Just look up at me for a second. The way to know if you really believe it is if we are generous people. I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about you, holistically, with your time, with your energy, with your thoughts, with your investment in people. Are you generous? You see, I think what David puts his finger on at the end of his life is when the gospel gets in us, it always gets out of us. Not because we try really hard, but because grace changes the very inner workings of our soul and makes us different people. So he he responds to that. Moving along, verse 15, he says this. We are aliens and strangers. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. So here's what he's saying. Here's what David steps back, and as he's getting close to the end of his life, here's what he says All right, in my 2020 vision, looking back, here's what I now realize and now recognize is that all along i was going to meet this day somehow some way with his comment without hope means that that 10 out of 10 people die he's saying it was it was hopeless for me to try to hold on to this life and to try to preserve it and to try to do all these things in order to elongate it he says this day was going to come someday i think what he'd say to you and me and this is hard to say, but to celebrate that life is temporary and eternity is forever. There's this recognition in David. My days were numbered. Long before I came to be, the psalmist writes, my days were, were numbered. God, you knew them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't eat healthy and avoid fast food and go organic and do all the things we do. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that in the midst of that, realize that one day you won't be here. One day, like David, at the end of his life, we will breathe our last breath. Here's the way that psalm that we began with, and the morning says it, Psalm 90, verse 12. Uh, It's actually Moses who writes this, teach us to number our days aright. God, remind us that we're going to die someday. That's what he says. Remind us that we will not be here, because isn't it easy to just keep thinking that we have eternity in this body, in this place, and so we spend our time in a way that reflects the fact that we really don't believe that often? Because if I believed that my days were numbered, if I really understood that, I would do things a little bit differently. And he says that we might gain a heart of wisdom. So here's what Moses just said. When we remember that someday we won't be here, we live here differently, and we live here in a way that actually allows us to walk in the ways of God better. Better. So let me point out, I think there's three things that happen when we gain a heart of wisdom by recognizing that our days are numbered. One, we have the freedom to enjoy life. Ironically, knowing that your days are numbered gives you the freedom to actually enjoy life because you can either spend your time trying to preserve your life or you can spend your time living your life. But the more we try to hold on to this life and suck it dry, ironically, the less joy we actually find in this life. Let me give you an example. We, uh, a few friends of mine and I had a, um, a ski pass over uh, a few of our years in college. And so I, I, I have no shame in admitting I'm a fair weather skier. So, we would go up and we would get first tracks and we would hit the slopes early when it wasn't all that windy yet. And we would enjoy the better half of the day from like eight to one. And we would ski hard and we would enjoy it. And then we would go home because we had a pass. And we knew, we knew we were going to be able to come back tomorrow or the next weekend or whenever. If you've ever taken your kids to an amusement park, if you've gone to Disneyland with your kids, you know this principle, right? I mean, it's, we spend $100 per person on this day, and you will enjoy it, right? Everybody here is going to have the time of their life, because this costs a fortune. Now, get having fun already, right? And you're like, everybody's melting down, and you're like, no, we will stay till this closes. We will be the last one on the rides because it costs a ton, and there's a, isn't there a, a freedom in knowing if you have a past, and you just get to go and enjoy it for as long as you enjoy it, and then you get to leave. I think God would say to you, hey, 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 eternity. It's forever. And one day, this life will come to a close, but the perspective you have on what comes next is what allows you to receive that open-handedly as a part of your humanity And say back to God, now, I'm not going to try to just preserve my life, but I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to live it. I think that's one thing that happens. I I think, secondly, we get a clarity of priorities. A clarity in our priorities. The wisdom that comes from numbering our days um, allows us to have a clarity of the things in life that really matter. Here's why you will never meet somebody on their deathbed who says, you know what? I wish I had a bigger house. You know what? I wish I drove a nicer car. You know what I wish? I wish I would have worked a few more hours. You Never get that. And what would it it look like to be people who received God's gift of, of divine priority Now to value our families a little bit differently. To, to spend the time with we, people we love a little bit more intentionally. To maybe put the phone down a little bit more and the calendar down a little bit more and the texting and the Facebook and the tweeting and the LinkedIn and the, all the other ways that we have to, have to be connected with people who we aren't with. To enjoy the people who are there. See, priorities start to change a little bit priorities and then I I think lastly I'd say um, that when we number our days and it leads to wisdom a a good and quote-unquote good investment is redefined in terms of kingdom impact a quote-unquote good investment is redefined in terms of kingdom impact because if this life is temporal and the statistics um, glaringly point out that it is then I want to invest my time and my energy and my money into things that aren't if I can. So I don't want, just want to make a difference. I want to make an eternal impact. I think that's what it means to, to number our days, to know, God, someday we'll meet you face to face. For some of us, it's, it's, it's going to be closer than we think. How do we live in a way that reflects the reality that our days are numbered. Okay, see, because that, that 2020 vision that David gets as he gets closer to this has the ability to change the way that you live today and the way that I live today. Verse 18. He says this. O Lord God of our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Isn't that a great prayer? This is a king looking out over his nation. This is a dad looking out over his kids, knowing that his life is not long for this world, and his prayer is, capture their hearts. Keep their hearts loyal to you, and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, your requirements, your decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. So he looks at his son notice both of his prayers. One, God, give them wholehearted devotion to you to follow your decrees, to follow your commands. And second, give them loyalty. I wonder if, if David would sort of step back and say, you know, the, the areas where I drove my course off, my life off course, were the times where that wasn't the way I was living and that wasn't what I was doing and I wasn't following after God. I wonder if in the end it sort of becomes clear where the blurry sort of fades into the observable for David, and he goes, those were the times in life that were dark, and those were the times in life where I struggled and I was unsatisfied, and I wonder if he would say to not only his nation, but maybe more importantly to his son, walking in his path, there is fullness of life. You see, I think this clarity, this, this perspective starts to come into focus for David. And I think he realizes not only in his son, but in everybody else in the nation of Israel, that the next generation is a present priority. See, if it's true, and, and, and here's the thing, it is that you will not be here someday. And the way that we invest our lives in the next generation coming up is of paramount importance. It's, parent. it's, it's not something that we relegate to children's ministry and Janet has to take care of that and, and we relegate it to student ministry and, and Chris has to take care of that and young adult ministry and Brandon runs that. It's an investment on our church level, corporate level, all level. The next generation is not a future priority. It's a current priority for us. It's a current priority for us. And our prayer all across the board in every single level of ministry, no matter where it's at, is God, capture their hearts. May they be loyal to you and may their devotion to you be unwavering for your glory and for their joy. I mean, that's our prayer as a church. That's our prayer as a church. And I'm gonna conclude with this. If it's, if it's true, I think there's a few things that we need to embody to make it a present priority. One, I think we need to be, be willing to share our stories. And here's the thing, here's the thing. The next generation doesn't so much need to hear the story about how you were awesome. This <laughs> is just it's like mentoring in two minutes. They don't need to hear how you're awesome. They need to hear how you failed and how God's grace was enough. You can mix in a few you were awesome stories too. They need to hear God was sufficient for me in this. He was enough for me in this. And he's gonna be good to you regardless of what comes at you in life. We need to share our stories. We need to to value value the input and perspective of the next generation. We may sing some songs here that you don't connect with. We may sing some songs here that I don't connect with. My hope is that we sing songs that you do connect with, but my hope also is that your grandkids connect with them and your children. And so we're, we're going to be willing because we believe that the next generation is a present priority to deviate from, from our um, desires and from our preferences a little bit to say we're going to embody this value of creating a ripple effect through the next generation. finally we're gonna create space for their leadership and they're gonna mess up and we're gonna pick them up and cheer them on and say the kingdom is worth it God is good his grace is in this keep moving forward keep going you can do this why? because the next generation isn't a a future idea or investment it's a present priority guys David, I think, gets this at the end of his life, and I wonder if there's this thought in the back of his mind where he thinks, I should have invited Solomon in a little bit more. I should have shown him a little bit more about what it looks like and what it means to be king. I should have been a, a better father. I should have done all of these things because in this moment, I think he realizes, I'm handing this baton off, but I want to hand it off to trustworthy hands where people who can take it and run with it way further than we ever could. That's my prayer. My prayer for you and I is pretty simple. It's pretty simple. It's that we wouldn't wait till our deathbed to have 2020 clarity, vision of what God invites us to. But that we might be people who live with a perspective of an open hand, that the things that we have are really just on loan from God. That it might cause us to be absolutely, wholeheartedly, joyfully generous people. That we might realize that this life is fleeting no matter how hard we try to hold on to it. That we might realize that someday this life will pass away for us. And that our our priority would be investing in the next generation to carry on the good news of the gospel. That's, that's deathbed 2020 vision that my hope is trickles over into our lives before we die. Today. That's my prayer, is that it influences us today. You see, the irony is that David, King David, inspires his people by being a king who gives lavishly. They look at him and they, they're just, they're taken back and they, like David, give in response to the goodness and grace of God. But here's the thing, you have a better king. You have a, you have a different king, you have a better king. You have a king who doesn't just show you how to give, he demonstrates giving his everything his body broken, his blood shed on the cross for you. And the question is, does that gospel, does that message, does that truth get in us in such a way that moves us from the oughts and shoulds of religion to the joyful response of the gospel? My prayer is that it would, and that it would change us, and that in changing us, the ripple effects would go to our kids, and our neighborhoods, and our communities, and our world. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer?